Psalm 73. When we began this study on the summer in Psalms, uh, one of our church members came to me and we're talking about the Psalms and they said their favorite was Psalm 73 and it's not one that I've really heard of being mentioned as a favorite, but I like them all. And so I've kind of put it in my notes, and I've gone back and forth and looked at it a few times. And this week I went back to it, and uh, it's a great psalm for us to study this morning. And so Psalm 73 will be our text. Before we kind of dive into it, uh, by way of introduction, um, I want to remind us something we all know. Every one of us who strive to walk by faith, at times, will still struggle, right? Every, every single one of us, even the most spiritually strong in this room, the most spiritually wise, the most faithful of us, has moments of weakness and crisis. As a matter of fact, every single day we wake up, <laughs> there's a potential for our faith to be challenged right? It's about as sure as that, that snooze button on my phone. Y'all hit the snooze button when you wake up? Wake up, I'll just hit snooze, right? About as sure as that alarm goes off and you hit that snooze button, you can be sure every day there is potential for your faith to be challenged. If you don't believe me, try getting up and making it to church on a Sunday morning with your family, <laughs> right? That can be a struggle, it can be a challenge. And our struggle, our crisis from day to day, spiritually speaking, might be an internal struggle. Um, it might be the struggle about doing what God wants me to do versus doing just the things I want to do. All right? Maybe our, our crisis in faith comes from a loss or defeat in life. Something we've, we've gone through, we're going through that really brings us down and that brings us into a crisis. Well, in Psalm 73... Uh, as it shows you there, uh, written by a man named Asaph, and it, his crisis here comes from something different. He, this man who was a uh, leader of music in some form or fashion in the temple in the time of David, this man looked around his world and he said this. He said, why are the wicked people prospering while the righteous people suffer. And you can almost hear him just asking God the question or thinking on the question, why God, why do the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper? And that's the context of this. And, and Asaph's actually in good company. In Job 21.7, Job once said it this way, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power. So this is one of those age-old questions for Christians when we look around and see the world and, and wonder, why are, the, why are the godless seemingly doing better than us at times in earthly ways? So I want us to, before we even get into the text, take what I believe is the sermon in a sentence based on what we just looked at and I want you to put this in your, write it down, put it in your mind, say it to yourself. No matter what, we trust that God is good 
and that everything he does is right. Church, do you agree with that statement? No matter what, we trust that God is good and that everything he does is right. If you can receive that truth and hold on to that truth, then when you go through your struggle, when you go through your crisis, you'll be able to go through it with the right perspective. So let's see how Asaph went through his crisis. And this text is naturally divided in, in three ways. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 1, it starts with the word truly. If you go to verse 13, it starts with the word verily. And in verse 18, it starts with the word surely. These, these three words here um, kind of divide this, this poetry, if you will, in Psalm 73. And so that's how we'll break down this text as well. The first section is 1 through 12. Notice the crisis of his faith. The crisis of faith. We're just going to read one or two verses at a time, and I'll give you some comments as we go through it. So, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now, does verse 1 sound like a crisis? No, it sounds pretty good. It sounds like a good statement of faith, a declaration of truth and of faith. And let me remind you that he wrote this after going through his trial, right? And so after going through the things he went through, after going through this, this struggle, internal struggle in his heart, he came back and said, after all this struggle, truly, surely, God is good. I hope we can go through struggles like that. After wrestling with whatever we might wrestle with in life, we can come back and say with, with Asaph, Surely God is good. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. It's this picture of a Christian walking down a path, this Christian life, this Christian walk. But sometimes, as we know, right, it's not a, it's not a perfect path, is it? Some things knock us off the path. Sometimes the path is rocky. And he says here, my, my feet were almost gone. I almost slipped, almost fell from the right path I was walking. What caused him to almost fall? Verse 3. And this is the crux of the matter. This is the crisis. Verse 3. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So not only, the problem here is not that he... The problem is not that Asaph saw that the wicked were prospering. The problem is his attitude toward the wicked who were prospering. And his attitude was this, I am envious of them. What does it mean to, to envy? Uh, I was looking that up this week. There's so many different definitions of the word envy. One definition is this, a feeling of discontent or resentment towards someone else because of their possessions. Another simple definition is, I want what they got. <laughs> it's a simple definition. I want what they have. They have something, and I want that, right? And so he is envious of the arrogant, envious of the foolish, envious of the wicked. And then he begins to describe them. In verse 3, he calls them prideful and prosperous. In verse 4, it says, for there are no bands in their death, which means there's no pain in their death. It, it seems like they're just... Going on fine, uh, verse 4 says, their strength is firm. Uh, I see in these verses, and we'll see it in a minute, no, 
It's like these people who are wicked, who are godless, who hate God, not of God's people. It seems like, he says, they have everything they need. And not only do they have everything they need, but they seem to have everything they want as well. I mean, they are just overindulgent in things of this world. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Again, notice Asaph is looking at the wicked and saying, they're doing better than we are. We're God's people. We're the people of Israel. We are striving to follow God's word, and we're striving to do right, and yet they're doing better than we are. They're not in trouble like we are. Verse 6, Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. What's that mean? What does it mean that they wear their pride like a necklace and violence is in their life like, a, like clothes? To me, that means, to me it means this. The wicked people in Asaph's time were flaunting their wickedness. They were flaunting it. And that reminds me of the day and time we live where people not only fall into sin, but they flaunt their sin, right? Our, our country takes an entire month, last month, to flaunt sin. And wear it as a symbol of pride. Yikes. And that's what these people were doing. Not only were they wicked, but they were flaunting their wickedness. Verse 7. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish for. Again, overindulgent. Verse 8. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. So in verse 8 we see that their, their wickedness not only affects them, but it's affecting others as well. They're speaking out against others. They, they aren't kind or generous with their prosperity, but they are dangerous with their prosperity. And then it gets even more serious to me in verse 9. It says, They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. They've set their mouths against the heaven. They, they have no care for God. Look at 10 through 12. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. So let's kind of summarize these first 12 verses. Asaph is a man of God. Surely he's a man who loves God, worships God, helps lead music in the temple that worships the true God, and is a man of faith, knows God is the God of Israel, and yet as he looks around in his day-to-day experience, he says, why does it seem like God is blessing the wicked nations and not his very own nation? And so for this man... He's experiencing a very real crisis of faith. Here's your first application. Application number one, very simply, do not envy. So much easier said than done, right? And let's talk first about the wicked. I, my first thought here when I was going through this note, these notes and, and writing these notes out was, and, I, and I've, I've said this before, in the last couple of years, I personally have stopped watching so much news, and it's really helped my life. (laughs) I recommend it. I still watch some news, but it can be pretty depressing 
to watch the world we live in and to see the wickedness of the world and the craziness of this world if that's all you ever put into your mind, right? And if not, we're not careful, we might get either brought down by those things or maybe even come to envy some things. Here's another one that I need help on as well is not only taking in less news, but how about taking in less social media? How many of us get on social media and go, wow, that person has the truck I want or the house I want or the vacation I want, right? And we, we might tend to envy because we put those things in our minds constantly. Our mindset should be this. Whether it's through the news, whether it's through social media, whether it's in person, here should be our mindset. If someone around us has something that we think is better than what we have, here's what we should say. God bless, God bless them with whatever they have, and that's awesome, but I'll be content with whatever God gives me. It's that contentment we're looking for right here. Not to be envious, but to be content. And if there's something else I need, I'll work. And if it's according to God's will, I will get that thing, right? I'll work for it. He will provide through his will and through my uh, working for that thing I need. But here's the problem with this type of envy. And he said it. I almost slipped. I almost fell. And we can slip and we can fall into the same mindset. When we envy, we're saying this, that God is not in control and that God is not fair or God is not right or God is not good. So even if we might not say those words, when we envy, when we begin to think that way, somewhere inside we, we are prone to lean toward, is God truly good? Is God truly fair? Is God truly right and just? But if you remember, a few minutes ago we declared, didn't we? God is good. We sang it this morning too. God is good all the time. We've made this declaration. We know he's good. We know he's right. And everything he does is good and right. Why does God allow the wicked to prosper on earth at times? Why? We don't always know. Why does God allow the righteous to suffer at times? We don't always know. But here's what we do know. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His will is greater than our will. And he has a purpose for every single thing he does. Everything. And so whatever's going on around us, we should not envy people because they're on a different path than we're on. And our goal should be to walk the path that God has laid before us as faithfully as we possibly can. To walk with him in faithfulness. Do not envy. That's our first application. Let's move on to the second thing, and that's the change in crisis. The change in the crisis. So look at verses 13 through 17, and You'll notice here, and we don't know how long this went on in his life, but I imagine it was some period of time, and it was not an instant change. It took some self-examination. Verse 13, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. To me, this is Asaph throwing his hands up and saying, he's saying, what's the point? Surely I have washed my heart, cleansed my heart in vain. Have you ever thought that before? Have you ever thought, and, and if we're honest, some of us have probably thought this at some point in our lives, what's the point of me having to read the Bible? What's the point of me praying? What's the point of me going to church week after week after week? What's the point of me striving to live in holiness? What's the point? 
I feel like Asaph is kind of getting to this way. He's like, what's the point? Why am I living a pure life when God doesn't seem to be blessing that? But we know there is a point, right? There is a point. Our Creator made us. He loves us. He calls us to Himself. And we understand life is bigger than us. And so we want to read the Bible, pray, go to church, be holy as we can be for His glory. Look at verses 14 and 15. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. I mean, this is is a battle he's going through, a crisis. He's waking up thinking about it. 15. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. It's like he even knows here. He's like, if I get up and start talking about the things I'm thinking, I'm going to bring other people down around me. He knows, he's, which I appreciate the fact that he realizes that, that his negativity about this, if he speaks about it, is going to hurt other people. Are y'all like us? Uh, I know we have six people in our house, and there's hardly a day that goes by where someone doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed in our house with six people. It's pretty much every day, at least one person. And that's probably true if you just live with one other person. <laughs> That somebody's going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed a lot of mornings. Um, and sometimes in my house, one person waking up on the wrong side of the bed can ruin that morning for all the other people in there. Is that y'all or just my house? Other people too? How about this? There's a lot of t- several teachers in here. Sometimes one bad attitude in a classroom can bring down the whole classroom. People that have been around sports, coaches, Sometimes one player with a bad attitude can bring down the rest of the team, right? Church, I've seen this. One negative person in the church, I've seen it, can bring down the whole group. And he says here, if I speak these things I'm thinking right now, I'm struggling with, I would bring down the group. But instead, he's like, I'm going to pray about this and, and think on these things and figure out, let God lead me in how to handle this. Can I just give you a, a, this is not even in my notes, but there are things that pastors and leaders of churches think but can never say. <laughs> there are things they go through, and, and, and there's some, some Sundays where, and where you, you, know, you don't even feel 100% ready to sing up here in front of people or even preach sometimes. And, and you have to say, God, just help me, right? God, just help me. And, and leaders in, in churches have that, burden at times but that's why we have to pray god lead lead and so i just love that verse that he said if i would have spoken it you know i could have brought the whole group down don't let don't let if you go through periods of negativity do your best not to let that rub off on others that's that's what i'm trying to say there verse 16 when i thought to know this it was too painful for me What he he means in verse 16 is as he tried to figure out the situation, why is this happening, it just brought him pain and misery. It seemed to him to be a wearisome task. It was was weighing on him and wearing on him. You ever been there before? You ever been through something before, a crisis in your life, and just wears on you? What made the change in the crisis? Look at verse 17. What changed it? In verse 17, we see the whole psalm shift. He says, 
until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Asaph went to the temple, went to the sanctuary, went to the presence of God, and in doing so, his perspective began to get back in line, right? His, the lens in which he was seeing the situation became more clear. He had been clouded by sin and pride and envy. And now, as he went to the temple, in the presence of God, being kind of getting his eyes in the right place, his heart in the right place, his mind in the right place, his perspective changed. And he realized, verse 16, their end, which is to say this, he realized the wicked were not ultimately going to win or be victorious. Now, even if they were earthly uh, prosperous their entire lives, in the end, in one way or another, the wicked will, will suffer. So that leads us to our second application. I'm basing this from verse 17. The first one was do not envy. The second one is do draw near to God. You see, as he came near to God, his perspective changed and his situation changed. His crisis, he saw the crisis differently. How do we draw near to God? I'm going to give you four ways, and we talk about these all the time. But how can we this morning draw near to God? Number one, through faith in Christ. It's only by faith in Christ where God is drawn near to us through sending Christ and calling us by His Spirit that we can draw near to Him. So we must draw near through faith. The second one, draw near through His Word. Haven't said this in a while, but get into the Word until the Word gets into you. Get into the Word. We cannot draw near to God apart from His Holy Word. I was thinking about the Bible this week, and um, as I was reading some myself, and I was thinking about how most people I know now, and especially nowadays, most people I know, if they don't have a plan to read the Bible, they won't consistently read the Bible. That's most people. And I don't, I don't know, I feel like 20 years ago maybe, I was around people that might could just pick it up randomly from day to day and read. But most people I know need that plan in place. Are you all that way? Do you need a plan? Um, some people like to do their, financial, their finances in a budget. Our church has a budget, right? And some families do that. And I've heard people talk about how if I stay on budget, I'm doing good financially. If I get off that budget, it falls apart. Um, some of you plan your week out. You get on a calendar. You might have it on your phone or on, on your, your desk. You have a calendar. You plan your week out. Every Sunday at night, I plan out the workouts I'm going to do that week uh, when I go to, to the gym. And what I found is when I write that down on Sunday night, I'm more likely to do it on Monday through Saturday. And so when it comes to your Bible intake, do you have a plan? Some of us are reading a plan right now on an app, and if you're not in that plan and like to be, come see me. It'll help you. It will help you have a plan and help you have other people around you, and you will not draw near to God apart from the Word of God. Psalm 1, 1, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119 says we need to hide His Word in our heart. The Psalms call us to draw near to God through His Word. 
The third one is, is prayer. Of course, we know prayer is so important. It's probably the thing that's most important that we may neglect the most. But may we not neglect prayer. Tie it to your Bible reading. Read it, pray before you read your Bible. Pray after you read your Bible. Pray while you read your Bible. Pray before you go to sleep. Pray when you wake up. Pray before you eat. Pray after you eat. Sometimes the meal's so good, I pray while I'm eating. <laughs> pray. We could never pray too much, could we? And if you want to draw near to Him, you draw near to Him through prayer. So, faith. The word, prayer. Can you guess the last one? Through the church. You see, Asaph went to the sanctuary, which I know is a little different than church now compared to there in the Old Testament, but there's still a similar concept in the fact that he was going there to worship, right? He's going there to worship, and, and also there are other believers around, and, and so we draw near to God by worshiping with other believers. And so when we come here, we're taught, we're challenged, we're encouraged, and we're given opportunities to serve. You see, I hope and pray every Sunday we come together, it is an opportunity for us to remember that, that life is not just about earth, but it's about heaven as well. Isn't that what it's about? Think about that. When you show up every Sunday morning and Wednesday night, you're reminding yourself, I, this world is not my home, right? I'm not home yet. I'm on my way home. I'm on my way to glory. I'm not there yet. And simple things like showing up with your church family is a reminder of that perspective. That's also like giving offerings to the church, right? That's, that's a reminder that the physical things I have are not just for me, but for others and I, as I give. And church, I, was, I wrote this down. In every week, there are 168 hours. Is that right? Is that good math? 24 times 7? 168 hours in a week. And if you come to every single meeting of our church, we're here about three hours together. That's not a lot, is it? But I would argue with you that those three hours are three of the very most important hours of your week. To come together with the church, to be encouraged, strengthened, and to serve. Asaph's perspective did not change. Look at verse 17. It did not change until he went to the sanctuary of God. Our third and final point is we've seen him in this crisis of faith. We've seen the change. And now look at the resolution of the crisis in 18 through 22. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How are they brought unto desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Going into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, Asaph began to see the truth. Uh, that God would pour out his wrath on the wicked in his own time, in his own way. Verse 20, I noted is interesting. I, and I wondered, did Asaph imagine God being asleep earlier in the psalm? 
earlier in the crisis? Was he like, where's God? Is God asleep? Where is God? But now in verse 20, he says, Lord, when, when you get up, when you wake up, or when you decide to do something about it, you will destroy them. But in this, in 21 and 22, he, re- he recognizes that he was wrong. He recognized that he was ignorant of the situation. And I'm reminded that when, we, when our faith is tested, it sometimes takes us time to walk through that situation. We've probably all been there where our faith is tested and it just takes some time and prayer and, and to, get, to get through that. But again, going into the presence of God led him to the right thoughts. And now listen to his response. I love these last verses. You've already heard them once this morning. 23 through 28. Listen to his response of praise. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. And thou hast hold me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works i want you to look quickly at eight declarations of truth here you can look at those quickly there in these verses he makes these statements of faith declarations of truth in verse 23 he talks about the presence of god in his life not only is god present in 17 when he's in the sanctuary but god is present in his life He talks about the guidance of God. Not only is God present, but God leads and guides. Verse 24, he talks about the assurance he has from his God. Verse 25, he talks about the priority of God in his life. He says, whom have I I in heaven but thee? I have nothing on earth I desire besides thee. You see the priority of God in his life. Number five, notice in 26, the strength. Though my heart and flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart. Church, when you feel like you are weak, when you feel like you don't have the strength to go on in some situation, remember this, that God is your strength. And when we are weak, He is strong. Number six, I said it this way, notice the teaching of God in His life. Because He says, They that are far from thee shall perish. So, teaching or maybe I should put learning there he learned the thing he did not know previously in his crisis he he realized okay now I see God is going to destroy them number seven the protection of God in his life God's there God will protect him and verse and then finally the proclamation of God in his life he says I'm going to draw near to God I'm going to trust in him and then I'm going to declare his works as we look at those can you this morning declare these same truths could you say this morning i'm thankful for these eight things in my life
and that I know God has brought these things into my life. I hope you can say that. Can we pray like Asaph prayed? Can we have our perspective shifted toward God like Asaph has his perspective shifted? Do we love God like that? Do we have faith to declare truth like this? So our first application was do not envy. Our second application, do draw near to God. And our final application, do remember, church, that God is good all the time. Remember that. Don't forget it. Let me tell you how, God, how good God is. That before the foundation of the world, God, Father, Son, Spirit, in a covenant of, of grace, knowing He would create man, and knowing man would turn against Him, in this eternal covenant, God planned and decided to make a way to save the people who would hate him. That's pretty good. In eternity past, God is so good, he decided, you know what, I'm going to create people and they're going to be my enemies, they're going to hate me, and I'm going to still provide a way for them to be saved. And then in that eternal trinity and, and covenant, the plan was this, that the Son of God would come and suffer at the hands of the wicked. Is God good? If any man on this earth could have looked around and said, why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? It would have been Christ. Right? But instead, the righteous one died for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. He suffered that we might become the children of God. And now, church, having been born again, rescued from the sin that would damn you, can we not declare the truths of God, such as God is good? Declare these truths daily to your own soul. Declare these truths weekly in the sanctuary with God's people. And declare these truths to anyone who will listen. Namely this this morning, that God is good and everything He does is right. When your faith is in crisis, turn to Psalm 73. See the change. See the resolution. And praise our God, for truly He is good. Let's pray.